I just want to recommend a few reading material, uh, a few very, very good books. First book, Christ and His Sanctuary, compilation from Ellen White, of Ellen White's writing about Christ and His Sanctuary. Awesome material, great stuff. Highly recommend it. Uh, <clears throat> for some of you who have the app, it's probably on there, the Ellen White app. Second book is called The Sanctuary Service by M.L. Andreessen. Fantastic. Much details, very well written. Uh, <clears throat> you read this, you'll know the sanctuary from in and out, no problem. And the last book, I don't have a copy with me, it's called The Shadow and the Cross by um, one of our founding fathers, Brother Hayskull. Excellent book showing, um, <clears throat> sh- showing how, the, how Christ is the type you know, I'll Christ fulfill the different things in the sanctuary service. Very, very well-written book, easy to understand, and uh, it's actually very good. Now, what I want to do uh, now, like I said, is I want to go through a little bit more of the sanctuary service and show how it teaches us about righteousness by faith, what it means to us today, and what we can learn about how we ought to live today. And I, I'd like to finish a little bit early to you know, if ever you have questions, to give you a little bit of time to answer questions, to ask questions, to put me on the spot and, and uh, see whether I, I know an answer or not, then I pray God will give me the answer. And if I don't, then I will go and, you know, do my research and bring you a satisfying answer. Sounds good? All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father Lord, we once again come to you. As we are continuing our study of the sanctuary service, Lord, this service that you have instituted for teaching, Lord, and we pray that you'll continue to teach us as we continue to study, Lord, for we want to know all that we can know. And Lord, though we will not exhaust this topic, I pray that you will give us a thirst for righteousness and a thirst to study of sanctuary. I thank you so much, Lord, for giving us this privilege. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins, and we pray that you'll put a hedge around us that we may not be distracted by anything. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to talk about the sanctuary in heaven. You are aware that there is also a sanctuary in heaven? Okay, let's do a quick Bible study. Uh, Exodus 25, 8 and 9. Uh, You can take the the references because I'll try to go a little quicker. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee. After the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instrument thereof, even so shall you make it. Now, when we talk about a pattern, what does it imply? Yeah, there, there, there is a, a the pattern is something that we need to imitate, okay? Like when, uh, when people do dresses, okay, or clothes, they have this pattern that they follow, and if they follow the pattern correctly, then they get the proper result. If they mess up the pattern, the dress doesn't fit, or it's too short. <laughs> now, <laughs> moving on. Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is, if, if you study the book of Hebrews, okay, this is, this is where the, the sanctuary service uh, comes to the New Testament. This is where Paul explains and expounds how Christ 
fulfills what the sanctuary is. And I remember when I, when I started reading my Bible and I read the book of Hebrews, I was like, what am I reading? I had no understanding. I couldn't get it. It, it just went way over my head. Why? Because I didn't understand the sanctuary. Right? Now that I've gained a, an understanding of the sanctuary, I go to the book of Hebrews and like all these incredible jewels and treasure comes alive. So now Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Okay? I've spoken for you for seven chapters, but this is the sum. This is what I'm, I was building to. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of, of the majesty in the heavens... Okay, so where is this high priest? In the heavens. And who's this high priest? Jesus, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not men. So where is the true tabernacle? In heaven. Uh, Hebrews 8, 5, it says, Who serve unto the example of the shadow of heavenly things, that's the one Moses built, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for sea, said he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So the pattern that Moses used to build the tabernacle was the sanctuary in heaven. So he got to see like this, this miniature version of what the tabernacle in heaven was like. And this is what he based the the tabernacle that he built on earth on. All right? Now, <clears throat> we've never seen the tabernacle in heaven, but it must be awesome and great. And obviously, the one that is here would never be as great as the one in heaven. That's a guarantee. Verse 3 says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifice, wherefore it is necess- of necessity that this man, that's Jesus, have somewhat also to offer. And so the services that were taking place here were a shadow, a representation of what was happening in heaven or what happens in heaven. In chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 says, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats or cows, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And so when Christ came to heaven as a high priest, he didn't just come in the sanctuary without nothing. He also came with blood, the same way that the high priest on earth would enter with blood. The only difference is that he came in with his own blood, the blood that he shed on the cross. It was therefore, this is um, 23 to 28 of chapter 9 of Hebrews. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heaven should be purified with these, speaking of the blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ is not entered into a holy place made with hands, that means he's not entered in the tabernacle on earth, which are the figure of the true, but into heaven itself. That's where he entered, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, let me ask you, when would the high priest on earth appear before God? On the Day of Atonement, right? Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world... 
he, had he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when Christ died, he went into heaven. But at the end of the world, he would enter with his own blood in the presence of this father in the most holy place. So good so far? Okay, we're, we're going to put that in perspective. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, he shall appear a second time without sin and salvation. So now if you look at the, the pattern, Christ came to heaven, he came with his blood, and at the end of time, now we understand that the end of time is a period of time, okay, the end time events that we always talk about. When this began, Christ enters in the most holy place with his blood, and according to the text, once he's done with this portion of his ministry, he appears a second time. That's the second coming. Okay? So between the beginning of the end time and Jesus' second coming, he's in the most holy place, ministering his blood. Now, <clears throat> why is he doing that? It's been done on earth. Why is he doing it there? What is it that the Day of Atonement teaches us? Why is it that there's this uh, thing? Because he's doing kind of a Day of Atonement thing in heaven. The same way that it was done on earth. Why? What, what is it that the Day of Atonement was really all about? Well, <clears throat> the Day of Atonement was simply a figure of the judgment. Do we all see that? If on the Day of Atonement you had not um, confessed your sins and the Day of Atonement would end, you would be cut off. Okay, it was a figure of how the judgment takes place. The judgment, is, there's only two outcomes. Eternal life, eternal death. That's it. And what determines the two? Your character. How is your character determined? By the choices and the habits that you formed in this life. Right? You choose sin, you form a character after that of Satan, you're, to, you're you know, moving toward eternal death. You choose obedience and righteousness and faithfulness and holy living and Christ-likeness, and your habits are moving you toward a character like Christ. You're moving toward eternal life. That's it. And so the judgment at the end of days determines exactly that. Now, in the Bible, <clears throat> and, and you've, you've most likely heard that several times if you've attended evangelistic series, you've heard about uh, a prophecy in the book of Daniel, and that's in the book of, uh, in chapter 8 of Daniel. If you, if you turn there, that'd be, that'd be really good. Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, 14, you have these two saints that are speaking to each other, and, and we, we've, you know, Daniel had this vision about, about these great beasts and, and these terrible things that are happening, and, and this, this horns and all the things that they're doing, and there's huge commotion that's going to happen on the world. And suddenly in verse 13, he heard one saint speaking to another saint said unto, uh, and they speak together, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice? Okay, what kind of language is that all about? That's sanctuary language. All right, so when Daniel heard these things, his mind was automatically taken to the sanctuary service system. And that's why there's a lot of language that we read in the Bible that if we don't understand the sanctuary, it's meaningless to us, right? When we talk about Christ being the Lamb of the world, the, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, that should take our mind back to the sanctuary. 
when we talked about the 144,000 standing with the lamb on Mount Zion, the lamb should take our mind back to the sanctuary service. That's the proper way to understand things. When Daniel sees this vision with um, it's, uh, the, the goat and the ram with a horn attacking each other, that should take you back to the types of sacrifices that you have in the sanctuary service. Okay, the words are not haphazard. Okay, they're specific and they have a purpose. They're there for a reason. When it's talking about those two animals, they're clean animals. When it's talking about the rest of the bees, the lion, the bear, and all these, these are unclean animals. Right? These are associations that we would be making if we had a better understanding of the sanctuary. So it's important to study it in depth. And so... <clears throat> He's saying concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then what? The sanctuary shall be cleansed. Sanctuary language. Now, when was the sanctuary cleansed? Okay, in the verse, after 2,300 days. But in the sanctuary service, when is it cleansed? On the Day of Atonement. And what's the Day of Atonement? Judgment. Right? So the sanctuary in heaven, this is <clears throat> obviously talking about the sanctuary in heaven, will be cleansed when the judgment ends after 2300 days. Does that make sense? Okay, so now how do we, and this is obviously a time prophecy, and you've heard about it, and I'm sure you're a little bit familiar, so I'm not going to spend so much time on it, but the, the prophecy uh, <clears throat> is explained a little bit more in Daniel, and then we always calculate it uh, right, the right way. And in Daniel 9, 20 to 24, we have this angel that comes, and he, he, gives, him under, he gives Daniel understanding because he didn't get it. I have questions in the back. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. I didn't say it ends there. <laughs> I say it will end with the judgment. Okay. <clears throat> I didn't make a mistake yet. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and so when, when the, the angel comes, he comes to Daniel, gives him understanding. He talks about another prophecy called the 70 weeks prophecy. And the 70 weeks prophecy is a prophecy that is cut out of the longer prophecy of the 2300 days. But they both have the same beginning. And the beginning, according to, uh, <clears throat> uh, to the book, is when the, the temple will be rebuilt and Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the walls will be rebuilt. And this you found in the book of Ezra. And it begins essentially in 457 B.C. And when you add the 2300 days, and because in prophecy a day equals a year, you add 2,300 years, and where do you get to? 1843. Well, that's what they calculated the first time, and then they realized that the year zero did not really exist, and then you had to add an extra year, because there's no such thing as a year zero. You go from minus one to plus one. You understand what I'm saying? Okay. <clears throat> and then you get in 1844. Now, what's 1844? No, it's not the great disappointment. It's the day of judgment that begins. That's the period where the day of judgment begins. That's when the end of time begins. That's when Jesus enters the most holy place and begin the judgment, begins to minister the blood, begins to plead 
for us on our behalf. This is when it begins. Now, what year are we in? 2015. So 2015 minus 1844, how much is that? There's some math whiz. Okay, you're about 170 years. Judgment has been going on for 170 years. Names have been appearing in heaven for 170 years, beginning with the dead, beginning with Adam and Eve, moving toward our time. 170 years. How long does it take for God to judge the whole world, all the billions of people? Because it's been happening for 170 years. You know, in 1888, there was a message of righteousness by faith that was given into the Adventist church. This message was to give, if accepted in its fullness, was to give power for the church to finish the work and for the end to come. 1844. That's about 80-something years from now. We're, we're, <laughs> we're 80 years overdue, Right? Why? Because we keep on sinning, we keep on dirtying the sanctuary, and Jesus just want to cleanse it, but every time we sin, the sanctuary gets dirty again. But one day, when the sanctuary is cleansed, it's done. Probation is done. The sealing is done. The marking is done. And Jesus steps out. And so when you're going to be praying and asking for forgiveness of sin, there's nobody up there to hear you. There's no one to minister for you. There is no more sacrifice for sin. One day, this whole judgment will close. And when it closes, well, it's done. Your fate is decided. Your fate is decided. The judgment, two ways. Everlasting life, everlasting death. This is where we're living now. And if 1888, they were close, how much closer are we in 2015? During the Day of Atonement on earth, people were on their knees searching their hearts pleading for God to show them their sins so that they could ask for forgiveness, so that they could repent, so that they would not be cut off. What are we doing today? Are we taking this seriously? Because this is the time we're living in. And I don't think we realize how crucial this time is. And God is not going to extend this time forever. Because the longer he extends the time, the more settled we will be in our sins. And we're done for. And he will cut time short. And time is running out. Time is not something we have. You know, and this is something I, I believe, and even for myself, I speak for myself, uh, we need to realize. <clears throat> we're being very pretentious when we think we have tomorrow. Because it, it just takes a few, more, a few too many people in the elevator tonight for the elevator to crash and we all die. God forbid this would ever happen, but think about it. We don't know when our last breath is going to be because once we die, our probation ends. There's nothing to do after we're dead. We can't do anything. 
while we're alive, we have to make things right. We have to be searching our heart and we have to make sure we're right with God. Now, I'd like you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> and we're going to read several longer passages because I want you to understand the link that Christ has between the sanctuary on earth and the sanctuary in heaven and how it helps us. How it connects us to the sanctuary. Because remember, God says that His way is in the sanctuary, both on earth and in heaven. You cannot take that out. And that's where Adventism has been privileged with the message of the sanctuary because we get to understand salvation in a way that no other churches out there understands it because they do not have the understanding that we have of the sanctuary message. Privilege. Privilege is what we have, but responsible is what we have to be. Hebrews 10, verses 5. A prophecy that was found in the Old Testament. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. What is it that God doesn't want? Sacrifice and offering. What's the purpose of a sacrifice and an offering? Yes, yeah, to deal with sin. So what is he really saying? He doesn't want sin. He doesn't want sin. He doesn't want you and I to sin. Goes on in verse six, in verse six. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. God does not enjoy sacrifices. In fact, there's places in the Bible where it says, Your sacrifice makes me sick. I don't want them anymore. God doesn't want us to come and ask for forgiveness all the time. He wants us to be obedient. So much better. Have you ever had to ask forgiveness for someone? To someone, actually? You know, you've hurt somebody, and now you have to ask for forgiveness. Is it a fun thing to go through? Don't you just ask yourself, man, it would have been so much easier if I would have not have had to ask for forgiveness, if I would have done the right thing, Right? That's us. Now, think of the person you have to ask forgiveness from. Don't you think that person is thinking the same way? Man, it would have been so much easier if you would not have messed up or hurt me. Right? Well, God is thinking the same way. God doesn't want us to have sacrifice and to be continually asking for forgiveness. Yes, we need to when we realize something, but what He wants is for us to be faithful. That's so much better. So much better. Verse 7, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God, to do thy will, O God. This is Jesus speaking. Now, keep that in mind. Keep in mind what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is thinking, what Jesus is doing. <clears throat> Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin, thou wouldest not, that or hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then say, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He take it away the first that he may establish the second. Okay, we're talking about the covenants. It's going to become clear in a moment. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So God takes away the old system to establish a new system. Now, it's not because the, old, the system is old. It's because he brought a new system that makes the system that was before old. Okay, it doesn't mean old because it wasn't good or it was bad. 
And every priest, verse 11, standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Those sanctuary services could never take away sins. They were there for a figure, for a teaching, and for developing and understanding faith. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. What does it say? He's perfected them that are what? Sanctified. In order to get perfection, what must we have first? Sanctification. Okay? Perfection is the end result of sanctification. And sanctification doesn't happen like that. It's a lifetime work of obedience. Okay? There's a lot of like rough edges and kink in our character that needs to be cleansed. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws where? Into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offerings for sin. Okay? There is a covenant that Christ is making, and this covenant is not the tables of stone in the ark. It's the law on our heart. We'll come back to that. Because Christ gave his body as an offering, we don't need to offer anymore. The Bible is clear. Chapter 8, beginning is verse 6, Hebrews. But now had he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. This is the covenant of the law written on our heart which was established upon better promises. The previous com- covenant, if you remember, uh, Moses sealed it by sprinkling blood on the people. And what did they say? We will be obedient to the covenant, which included all the laws and the Ten Commandments. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Now, what was the fault with the first covenant? It was the people. That was the fault with the covenant. God didn't make a faulty covenant. The covenant was fine, but because the people couldn't do it, the covenant became faultless, uh, faulty. Sorry. For, fault, see, for finding fault with them, that's the people, he said, Behold, the days come, said the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, said the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, say the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their heart, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he said, A new covenant he had made the first old, now that which decayed and waxed old is ready to vanish away. So now what God is trying to do, what God wants to do, is rather 
then having us always looking to the law of the Ten Commandments is to put it in our heart. And that's the Holy Spirit that's going to do that. And by having the law in our heart, it means that we are converted. It means that we have power to do that very law. By the way, you need to understand that the law of God is the standard of righteousness. That's how important that law is. It's the standard of righteousness. It's the standard in judgment. It's the standard that determines what sin is. If you take away the law like some other denomination wants to do there, well, you take away the law, well, you take away the standard of sin. You take away the standard in the judgment. You take away the standard of righteousness. So what do you have? You have nothing. You have basically no, no religion. This is central in everything, and I'll, I'll show you how central it is. Sister White says, The same law that was engraved on the tables of stone is written by the Holy Spirit upon the tables of the heart. Instead of going about to establish our own righteousness, we accept the righteousness of Christ. Why? If you studied righteousness by faith, you understand that when we fall, all of our righteousness that we ever had, gone. Okay? You keep the law, you would have been righteous if you would have kept the law all your life. Right? You would have made it, you would have been okay. But when you fall, just tiny little sin, whatever it may be, whatever righteousness that was there, gone. And you fall short. And you can't keep the law in order to be righteous because the law is only as good as when you keep it and it cannot make up for your past mistakes. So you're short. And you're always going to be short. And you're always going to be short. No matter how much you try, you can't get bonus righteousness point for keeping the law harder. It doesn't work. Okay? That's why you need Christ. Because Christ has a perfect righteousness. So instead of focusing so much, well, I've messed up so much, that's fine. Christ imputes his righteousness to make up for the righteousness that you're missing so you can be at the level. And now you can obey. And what Christ does is that now he imputing means to credit righteousness. So your bank account is, is in the minus. So what Christ does is he credits you righteousness so your bank account is at the level. So now you're at the same level as Christ. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. But now you gotta, you got to keep going. Because if you sin again, well, guess what? You fall short again. You need to go back. Forgiveness, imputation of righteousness. And then you come back to the level. And then you sit, well, you can't keep doing that. So what Christ does is that he imparts his righteousness. Okay? Imparting means that he shares his righteousness with you. So now that you have the righteousness of Christ imparting to you, you can walk faithfully and obey because there's power there. It's called grace. You know, every time I ask people grace, like, what is grace? First thing people say is, classic answer, which is a right answer, is, well, it's, 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 a, it's unmerited favor. Ah, okay, it's unmerited favor. So what's the favor? Well, it's grace. Well, what's grace? Well, it's a favor. It really doesn't tell you what it is. All it tells you is you, you can't earn it. You can't work for it. What grace is, Ellen White tells us, is that it's the great power of saving, or of salvation. It's the great power to save. So it's power. Power to be forgiven, 
power to obey. That's grace. Grace is power. Power available to you and I. It's not the cheap grace that we, we've been hearing too, too often, which is just, well, you just need God's grace. To do what? To just need God's grace. To do what? To obey. That's what you need God's grace. Nobody's going to talk to you about that. They're just going to tell you, you know, God's grace forgives you, and then it ends there. But God's grace is not limited to uh, give uh, forgiveness. It's much bigger and greater than that. So now let's go back to uh, where we were. Uh, Hebrews 8. Let's begin in verse 6 again. But now he had obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promise. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then, sh- then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the day comes, said the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Oh, I was done with that one. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> oh, that's what I was reading here. Uh, from Eloah. The same law that was engraved upon the tables of stone is written by the Holy Spirit upon the tables of the heart. Instead of going about to establish our own righteousness, we accept the righteousness of Christ, which is... I've just spent 10 minutes kind of trying to explain. His blood atones for our sins. His obedience is accepted for us. So the past is covered. Then the heart renewed by the Holy Spirit will bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. You want the fruit of the Spirit? You need a renewed heart. You get the renewed heart when the law is written on it. Through the grace of Christ, we shall live in obedience to the law of God written upon our hearts. Having the Spirit of Christ, we shall walk even as He walked. Walking as Christ walked. Well, what does that look like? Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. One of my... <clears throat> favorite passage because it, it hurts, because it's hard. That's why I like it. <laughs> verse 20, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, For what glory is it, if when you, buffet, you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Are we all there? First Peter, that might be Second Peter. First Peter chapter two. Yeah. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one. Now, for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. What do you do with an example? You follow it, right? That's exactly what he says. That you should follow. His steps. Verse 22. Who did what? No sins. That's the example that he left. No sins. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, keep these two in mind. We'll come back to them. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who... Uh, his own self bear our sin in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. 
Christ left us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sins, neither was guile found in his mouth. We have now died for sins and we live unto righteousness. Does that look like we have to keep on sinning and sinning is fine? Does it look like we're going to keep sinning forever and ever and ever? No. How can you do that and follow Christ's example? You can't. There is a time when we will get it together and the grace of God will empower us to be obedient. Obedient. Continually obedient. This is the experience we're looking for. When we go back to the sanctuary, it'll make so much more sense. Revelation 14, 1, 5. <clears throat> 1 to 5. Excellent passage, speaks of the 144,000. It begins in verse 1, saying, And I look, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Okay, what kind of language is that? Sanctuary language. A lamb, this is Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, refer us back to the sanctuary service. With him and 144,000 having his father's name written in their forehead. What's a name represent in the Bible? Character. Whose character do they have on their forehead? The father. God's character. They've developed a character just like God. And how do we know what the character of God looks like? Look to Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and four and four, forty and four thousands which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which are not defiled with women. They are virgins. That means that their, their doctrine and their truth is pure. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Hmm. Follow the lamb, whithersoever he goeth. Where does the lamb go? It goes to the slaughter. Are you ready to follow the lamb, whithersoever he goeth? These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruit unto God and to the lamb. First fruits, again, sanctuary language. First fruits was a festival of basically of the harvest when they they harvested their first fruit they would take these first fruit and they would wave them with God and they would offer them to God to thank them for having given them uh, a great harvest when Christ uh, resurrected if you remember Mary was going to worship him and he says don't worship me for I've not yet ascended to my father but then later on his disciple came and started worshiping him and he accepted the worship in between these two, there's an event that happened, and it's described very clearly in the Desire of Ages, where Christ ascended immediately to heaven, waved himself before God to see if his sacrifice had been accepted and came back. That's the first fruit. Now here, these 144,000 are the first fruit of the saved, showing that you know, the sacrifice of Christ and everything that has been done has been accepted. Now let's look at the last part. In their mouth was found what? No guy. Where did we read that before? The example of Jesus. For they are what? Without fault before where? The throne of God. Throne of God in the most holy place. That means they have 
no sins. They're like Jesus. They're following the example of Jesus to the dot. They're following him whatsoever he goeth. This 144,000 is, is what God is preparing right now. These people that can show the world that indeed the law of God can be kept beginning to end. We can be obedient. We can be faithful. We can be righteous. Not in our own strength. Impossible. That's why God gives us grace. Amen? Amen for grace? True grace. Not cheap, false grace. Real grace. So now, here's the thing. The Bible tells us that before Christ came and before Christ uh, sacrificed himself, the way to the most holy place was not open. But when Christ came, the way to the holy place was now open to us. So what does that mean? Well, it means we need to take a trip in our lives through the sanctuary. The sanctuary will teach us how we need to live right now. Because right now, we are in the great day of atonement. The entire typical day of atonement. Right? Right now, we're living in that period of time where the judgment is happening. And one day, this judgment will close. So how in the world am I supposed to live right now to make sure that when the judgment close, I'm saved and not lost? Sanctuary teaches that to us. Let's take a trip. We begin outside. We're outside the camp. This is where we live. This is the world. This is where everything's happening. This is where we're, we're interacting. This is where we do stuff. This is where we fall in sin. We've all been there. This is where our journey begins. When we fall in sin, we realize what we've done because the Holy Spirit convicts us. And we need to do something about it. And what we do is we come to the sanctuary. We cross the first, the, the outer curtain, the one that brings us. And what's the first thing that we see there? It's the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice to take care of our sin. We need a sacrifice. We need a sac- What's our sacrifice? It's Jesus. Jesus is our sacrifice. And, and not only do we meet Jesus as our high priest, we meet him as a sacrifice. And so at this point, Jesus takes care of uh, our sins. In the Lord's Supper, he spoke of the New Testament, his blood being uh, the New Testament that is shed for the remission of sin. And the book of Romans tells us that um, God has set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. So sins you've committed, God can take care of it through the blood of Jesus. And so the sacrifice of Jesus takes care of our sins, so to speak. Now, what's the next thing that happens in the sanctuary? It's the laver. What's the purpose of the laver? It's to wash. Wash, purify, cleanse. You see, when we enter the um, courtyard, the goal is to take care of the penalty of sin. And this is what Jesus does for us. So every time we sin, the idea is to get there to get sin dealt with. Now, do we want to stay in the courtyard? Anybody want to stay in the courtyard? Nobody wants to stay in the courtyard. And yet, 
this is what is being preached all the time. You see, the experience in the courtyard is the experience of justification by faith. Right? You, you hear about it that it's justification by faith alone. But really what they're preaching is justification alone by faith. As if there is no other experience. All we need is forgiveness all the time, every day, continually. Yeah, every time a new sin comes to your mind, you need forgiveness. But you don't stay there. You need to keep going. There is another experience that is even much better than forgiveness. Once we're cleansed, we're washed, we get to experience the holy place. Now the holy place is what happens after we've received justification. We've, we're, not, we're not righteous. God has made us righteous. Now a lot of people talk about God declares us righteous, but we're not really righteous. When, when God declared, let there be light, was there light? Of course there was light. When God says something, it happens because the Word of God has power. So whether God declares or makes, the Bible says He makes us righteous, we are righteous and now we can enter the holy place. In the holy place, there are three things. You have the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense. What do these things represent? These things tell us how we ought to be living our Christian experience. The bread represents, obviously, Jesus, the bread of God, the bread of life, the word of God. Study. This is where you can find life in the word. That's one of the things we have to do. The next thing is the lampstand. The light of the world, Jesus. But it's also, we are the light of the world. And what are we supposed to be doing? Yeah, we're supposed to shine. We're supposed to be witnessing. We're supposed to be sharing. Okay, a lot of us, and, and I speak for myself, you know, we can be really good at reading our Bible. But, you know, you don't just read your Bible. You study your Bible. You meditate your word, on the Word. You you, you sweat over it. And when's the last time you were in tears and you sweat and it, it was, a, 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 I don't want to say agonizing experience, but intense experience? Because that's how you ought to study your Bible. Not just you get up in the morning, you're half asleep, and okay, I'm done with my devotion. No, you got to spend time. Agonize with the Word of God. Then when you get to the lampstand, you're able to share what you've agonized over. And you have a joy of sharing it. And then the last one that has become my favorite is the altar of incense. What does that represent? The Bible in Revelation speaks of the, the, the smoke being mixed with the prayers of the saints. This is prayer time. But you know what I find so incredible about this? Is it's the high priest that makes sure that the incense is there, that the fire is working. Christ is the one who makes sure that our prayer are ascending to God. And remember we said that the smoke goes from the holy place and goes into the most holy place. If you notice the way that it's arranged, the altar of incense is the closest place to the throne of God. When you pray, you get as close to the throne of God as you can. 
as close to the throne of God as you can. And you're not even alone there. You're with Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit translates our prayer because we don't even know what we're supposed to pray for. <laughs> right? How much time should we be praying? Now, I speak for myself because when I found out, I'm like, oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm such an incredible sinner. How much time should we be spending in prayer? I mean, we're at the edge of the throne of God. At the edge. This, my friend, is the sanctification by faith experience. This is when we we learn to strengthen ourselves to be obedient, to be faithful. This is how we ought to be living our Christian lives. Because when you spend time in the holy place, when you go back in the camp, you have power. You can witness You can preach the word, you can pray, you can be strong because you spend time with Christ. In every area, Christ is there. And you know who else is there? The Holy Spirit, right? How is the Holy Spirit portrayed in the Bible? One of the many ways is oil, right? There's a passage in Exodus 30 where Moses uh, is given instruction to make a anointing oil. And this anointing oil actually anoints everything in the sanctuary. The altar of burnt offering, the laver, the showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the ark, the priests, everyone. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. There is not one experience that we're going through that the Holy Spirit is not there. But you see... This is great. You know, we, we, we have righteousness by faith. We have the justification by faith. We have the sanctification by faith. But you know, being obedient is not an easy thing. Right? There are struggles. It's, it's hard to go through everything. There's temptation that assails us. And do we want to go through that forever? No. Because there is another experience. And that's the experience of the most holy place. The, fir- the, the first experience in the courtyard takes care of the penalty of sin. The second takes care in the holy place, takes care of the power of sin over you. The third one takes care of the very presence of sin because you cannot appear before God with sin. And God wants to take away sin forever and ever so it never comes again. But before we, gotta get, before we can get there, we got to make sure that we're settled in the truth, and that nothing will deter us from following and obeying. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, holds the commandments, the law. The law is the standard of righteousness. The law tells us how we ought to be living. It's not just about what you cannot do. If you study it clearly, you'll see what you ought to be doing. It's not just don't kill, it's take care of life. Just don't lie. Speak truth. Amen? These are the things, this is how we ought to be living. And something that is amazing about the law. Let me give you a few verses for you to consider. In Luke 6.45, the Bible tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Let me ask you, how did God give the commandments? He spoke it, right? He was on Mount Sinai. He spoke the commandment before he wrote them. And this is a principle that out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth speaketh. Out of the abundance of the heart of God came the commandment of God. And what is it that God wants to do? He wants to put His law on our heart. What God is trying to do is, when He's saying, you know, I'm going to take your heart of flesh, uh, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, He's trying to say, I want to give you my heart. That you may be, think, act, speak, just like me. The whole experience here is God trying to transform us, to change us, to make us like Him. And we ruin our Christian experience when we stay in the camp or where we stay in the courtyard and we're afraid to move forward. Because God wants to change us. He wants us to be like Christ. And it's about time for us to stop or better to start moving forward. It's not an easy experience. It's not going to be all, you know, flowers and, and roses and, and, you know, perfume and rainbows. No, no, no. There's going to be dark moments. It's going to be painful. It's going to be Gethsemane experience. But that's how we get refined. That's how we learn to depend on God. That's how we learn to, to stop focusing on ourselves and focusing on God. That's when we stop complaining and realize that God has a greater purpose. That's when we realize that our character is not there yet. If everything would go fine, we wouldn't care about God. When you read the Bible, you realize that at the end of time, there's going to be a lot of plagues falling everywhere. And you realize also that when the plagues start falling, judgment, that's it. And you realize that the people of God will go through something called Jacob's time of trouble. And Jacob's time of trouble is not a fun time. If you read in the Bible, when Jacob was agonizing with the angel, he wasn't enjoying his time. Especially when his, his hip got dislocated. That was not a pleasant experience. There was an agony. He was holding to him. He said, you can't leave until you bless me. And he wouldn't let him go. And the angel said, let me go because sun, the sun is rising. Let me go. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you go. He didn't know who he was holding. He didn't know he was holding Jesus. And when he touched it on the hip, the, the joint just dislocated. That must be painful. But he wouldn't let him go. He would just hold on to him. The pain, the agony, all he could remember is how much of a deceiver he was. And yet, he wouldn't let go because he needed God to bless him. And what God did is that he changed him. You're no longer going to be a deceiver. You're going to be a conqueror. A prince. And this is what God wants us to do. And this is why the time of Jacob's trouble is what the 144,000 are going to go through. And they're going to suffer and it's going to be difficult. But yet, above all that and through all that, they're going to remain faithful and obedient. So that God will be able to look and says, these people are just like my son. And Jesus is going to say, I see myself in them. And the angels are going to look at Jesus. Jesus, these, these people, are, they're just like you. We want to hang out with you. Can we go get them? And Jesus is going to say, yes, let's go get them. And then Jesus is going to come back. But it will not happen until we get our acts together, depend on God, and obey Him fully and completely. Two things I want to appeal to you this morning. 
First, what we studied this morning is minimal. There's so much more that I had that I couldn't even share, and so much more that there is that I couldn't even get together. So much more for you to dig in and to study and to learn about. Things that will empower your Christian life in the message of the sanctuary. Remember, Ellen White tells us very clearly we have to have a clear understanding, and I don't even consider myself having a clear understanding. I need to go back and study more. And more and more and more. It never ends. It's the showbread experience. It doesn't end. We will have to continue doing that. Because one day when they take away our scripture, what are we going to have to study? What we have there. We have to meditate day and night. And so my first appeal is for you, when you leave here, to go back and study the sanctuary. Study it from the beginning, from the simple things, from the basics, and to keep on going deeper and deeper. Three books I suggested to you is a good start. Christ in His Sanctuary, Sister Ellen White. The Sanctuary Service by M.L. Andreessen. The Shadow in the Cross by Elder Haskell. You can, you can find all that online. You don't even have to spend money. I'd rather you get the book because it's better in a book than an electronic format, but it doesn't matter. This is a good place for you to start. Go and study. But my second appeal is way more important. My second appeal is for us to realize where we are. Not just in the Day of Atonement, but where we are in the sanctuary. Too many of us are in the camp. Too many of us have not even entered the sanctuary. If you've not even entered the sanctuary, you need to. Because those that don't enter get cut off. And they walk away with a scapegoat and never come back. Some of us have entered but we've stayed in the courtyard. Forgiveness, 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 but we don't go beyond that. It's time to go beyond that. It's time to go in the holy place that we may prepare ourselves to go into the most holy place. And so my appeal for you today is very simple. Go through the whole experience. Go through the whole experience. Don't get stuck. Keep moving forward. Don't get stuck in sin. That's not God's will. His will is our sanctification. His will is for us to perfect our character, that we may be just like Christ, to follow his example and to follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. If today you wanted to indeed Follow the example of the 144,000. To go wheresoever the Lamb goeth. To have your, to, <clears throat> to be, to not be with any woman, to be virgins, meaning to have your doctrine pure, to purify your belief, to purify your understanding that you know it, just like that. And that it's clear. That you want to have no guile in your mouth. Speak truth. Speak elevating that you want to be faultless before the throne of God. No sins like Jesus. I'd like to ask you to kneel with me as we pray.
Father, Lord, we, we kneel before you because we know when we pray, Lord, we have Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we also have the Holy Spirit. And when we pray, we also have you because our prayer ascends to your throne. But Lord, we realize that there's much to be done in our lives. But nothing will be done until we take the first step. And Lord, we are tired of lingering outside the sanctuary. We're tired of lingering in the camp. We're tired, Lord, of being in the wilderness. But we realize, Lord, you will not force us. You will plead, but you will not coerce. You will encourage, but you will not push. And so, Lord, today we're convicted of the importance of the way we live our lives. Your laws are clear, Lord, and we need your righteousness. We need, Lord, to be faithful. We need, Lord, to be obedient. We need you. We need your grace. We need power. We need strength. We're weak and feeble, and on our own, Lord, we're no better than the scapegoat. Father, Lord, I pray for all of us that are kneeling here. Lord, I, I don't know if personally I was able to convey the message you wanted me to convey. I don't know, Lord, if, if everything was well understood. And if not, Lord, I ask for forgiveness for my, my own weaknesses. But I pray that for everything that was understood, Lord, that you will magnify it through your spirit. That it will empower everyone that is here, Lord, to indeed walk through the sanctuary. So that one day, I pray each and every one of us will be able to present ourselves before your throne, faultless. And that we may be able to sit on your throne, because Christ sitting on your throne, and he said we'd be able to sit on his throne. And I pray this will be our experience. That as we, we live in this life, that we will do all we can, Lord, to be part of this 144,000 group. No matter what the sacrifice will be, the pain and the struggle. Heaven is cheap enough. Heaven is worth it. The struggle of this life do not compare with what you have in store for us. Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Lord, sanctify us. Your glory will sanctify us. Your character will sanctify us. And we will be able to be like Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer and hearing the desires that we have. Change our heart, Lord, and write your law upon them that we may follow every requirement. Lord, thank you for Jesus, for what he's done for us, for his sacrifice, for his ministry, and for opening the holy place and the most holy place for us. Thank you so much, Lord. Please bless us, Lord, as we continue this conference, as we continue to learn about righteousness by faith. And thank you, Lord, for blessing us so much with your presence. I thank you, Lord, and I pray this in the beautiful, perfect, and holy name of our High Priest Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.